Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I'm very excited to introduce you today to healthcare RevCycle data extraordinaire, Summer Humphreys. Summer, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Grace. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your background and what drew you into the healthcare RevCycle. So I have been in healthcare for over 20 years and I started out basically doing some consulting, but more on the strategy side. And so more looking at hospital physician relationships. And then I also got into operations and hospital business development. Uh, Again, that hospital physician alignment, service line growth, and then have been in revenue cycle for about the past almost 10 years now, just really drew me in because I was interested in how organizations get paid and how they make their money and how important it is to understand the data. Um, really Absolutely. What payers are paying, what they're looking at, if you're underpaid and how to go after it, if you get denied, um, really focusing on those details and the data. That's amazing. So being in this industry during COVID, what was that like? (laughs) So it's, yeah, uh, definitely seeing how certain service lines, certain areas just fell off a cliff almost, Um, particularly with respect to the elective procedures, which is where a lot of facilities do make their money. 
people weren't going in, people were canceling. And it was definitely difficult for a lot of facilities because they are facing higher volumes with their COVID cases, but these are the lower margins. So you have an influx of your lower margin cases coming and you were you know, kind of dealing with staff that maybe has challenges, maybe they're sick. Um, people working from home, which I think ultimately has worked out for the better for a lot of organizations. But that initial shift was really hard because you're dealing with a workforce that has predominantly been in office with that management style of being in office, switching to remote. And it's new way of life. Yeah, it's like the business of healthcare completely changed and completely shifted. And they had to figure out what data spots to figure out how to stay in business. Where do I need to focus my energy? What everything is changing. Everything is shifting. We got to turn to good data to let us know what's going on here. So um, you said you mentioned elective surgeries were really impacted. Were there any other parts of the service lines that were impacted by COVID? So in terms of elective surgeries, obviously, and then some of your general screenings. So people going in for their routine screenings um, would postpone those. And so then as a result, you may have the risk for certain um, diseases that go undetected because you didn't have that routine screening that you should have. Wow. Who would have thought that all of this like rev cycle data and knowledge would lead to like clinical knowledge and data like these people putting off these oh, these important checkups. I mean, that's very scary from a clinical standpoint and closing gaps of care and keeping people healthy, um, not to mention the business uh, that you know keeps your business alive, making sure that people stay healthy. So right. and, you're, and you're transitioning over to telemedicine visits. And sometimes you're not going to get reimbursed for a telemedicine visit, which you would for an in-person visit. Um, and then with these telemedicine visits, uh, sometimes patients show up, there's technology issues. Not all patients are technologically savvy, can run a Zoom meeting like we do right now. Uh, so it's getting patients to show up for these meetings, to be able to be on video to speak with the clinician. Uh, so that transition has also been an interesting one that likely is here to stay as more patients are finding it convenient. But I think you're still gonna have that gap of patients that is more comfortable going in person to see and talk to a doctor. Yeah, very true, very true. Now, those are kind of how the service lines were impacted back when COVID hit. You know, how has that changed now? What has bounced back? What's changed forever? You know, are, is there anything that's that's noteworthy there? So I would say that for the, for the most part, your elective surgeries have, have come back. Although you still have a patient population that I have friends who are very uncomfortable just in general going out and going through their daily lives as they were before. Uh, so 
I don't think anything's ever going to come completely back mm-hmm. to where they were. Although I think we, we've seen the recovery as far as it's going to get for the most part. Um, although you do see that, for example, there are enhanced cleaning procedures required, um, space in waiting rooms, social distancing. All of this makes the actual time involved to expand. And so you're looking at a throughput where you might have been able to do 10 procedures in a day. Maybe now you can only get in eight. Oh, wow. So there there are definitely some turnaround time issues that are going to impact overall. And it's just relaying these different COVID protocols. Now, in terms of office visits, though, however, if you are on a telemedicine schedule, a lot of times these visits can just you can run right through. And so some doctors are actually seeing more patients than they were before just because you're not dealing with the coming in the office and it's sometimes it's a smaller time slot. You can get more patients in a day. Wow. It's, it's really a huge shift. And so you're saying a lot of it is here to stay and that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just like in terms of individuals choosing or organizations choosing to require that individuals go back to work. I would say over half of your healthcare organizations are saying, no, it's, it's okay to continue working from home. And I've done a little poll of some of our, our clients and understanding their approach. And most of them are finding within their revenue cycle space, within their employees, that they're actually more productive. Wow. Wow. So while there was initially some challenges, those that have stuck with it that are remaining from home, a lot of individuals are more productive. Now, is this better for those who are employed? Because if, if I think I've worked from home for a long time, and so I'm used to it, but I also have some crazy hours. I get up early, I work late, but I have a little bit of flexibility every now and then to uh, get what I need to get done. Um, so not all people are used to that. And mm-hmm. what might happen is your desk is there, your computer's open all the time. You don't go home and leave it. So it ends up maybe impacting your quality of life if you're not used to working nights, but now oh, the computer's up. I can work a little bit. Mm-hmm. Get it. So maybe. some of these rev cycle managers are being more productive, but maybe having more administrative burnout. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's definitely a possibility. It's the work's yeah. there, the work's there to get done. But when you are done for the day, well, it's still there because you're not going home. And you don't have that community anymore, so maybe you have more work. But then when you're looking at a, you know, you you were doing maybe an eight to nine hour day before. Now you're doing a nine to ten hour day. It does. It it can impact you later. Yeah. So how can rev cycle managers that are managing a team kind of keep track of that and make sure that they help their workers work better? Right. Right. So I I do think that that uh, weaves into the uh, wanting to have that productivity reporting and having a good grasp 
on your data of what people are doing every day. And you can do this without being big brother, without, I mean, you don't, you don't need to have a camera on your employees. I mean, that's obviously your, <laughs> yeah, especially if it's, if it's if the reporting is telling you how you're, well, you're doing as a manager. Like mm -hmm. if your workers are working 12 hours, 14 hour days, as a manager, something's wrong with you. <laughs> so this right, is, right. in many ways, like the Orwellianness of maybe, you know, of tracking it is actually yeah. meant to help the big guy do the big guy's job better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I, and so in terms of the, I would say that there's definitely a wide variety of productivity reporting that you can conduct that does not make you be the, the big brother, um, but at the same time would let you know, okay, my employee two years ago was going through 300 records a day. Now they're going through 500 records a day. I'm seeing that they're, you know, clock in, clock out. 12 hours, my goodness, yes, this is great, but at the same time, is this healthy? Mm -hmm. um, am I going to maybe be at risk to lose this employee because yeah. they're not happy, but they're they're trying to keep up with everyone else? Mm -hmm. You know what's so interesting is that this is happening in every industry. I mean, you know, I think I feel like these workflow and you know workforce enhancement type features are used in finance. They're used in tech and other industries. Why do you think it's taken so long to come to healthcare? Things like that. <laughs> I think I think that one of the issues is that healthcare is more complex than mm -hmm. other industries, and healthcare is just hit from so many ends with so many things to deal with. And in terms of trying to appropriately solution a worklisting platform that's going to take into account everything that's going on that is going to be robust enough to handle new requirements, new issues, new prioritizations. It's just that the landscape with healthcare changes so frequently. So true. I mean, the landscape of healthcare, all of the shifting payments, requirements, the different things the payers will will cover one day, we won't cover the next day. And I mean, right. you're right. It has to keep up with all of that. Yep. Yep. Wow. And so you do find that there are still organizations that are working off of spreadsheets that get emailed and it's antiquated in doing it this way. But at the same time, it's getting the job done and change is everyone's afraid of change. I'm not going to lie. Most people, um, when they're faced that I have to work with a new solution, I need to move from this system, this system, it's just, but I like this way of doing it. Please don't change it on me. Uh, so it's, you do have a lot of people in healthcare that are used to finally getting it working one way and then they're facing a, a, a new way of doing things. Um, but I will say that... 
You hear about it from the front yeah. from the front office, like with robotics and surgery, doing precision surgeries, and you know you rarely think about it in the back office. Like mm-hmm. the back office also needs to have these new precision tools to help them do their jobs, and the whole change management that goes into that is just as scary. Yes. for a back office person as it would be for a surgeon doing precision robotics. Yes. Yes. No, it's, it, it is amazing because the Da Vinci uh, robotics has been out for quite some time now, but when you're looking at automation and RPA for backend revenue cycle, <laughs> it's new. Oh, wow. This is really happening. I myself have been working on, several automation initiatives that are uh, using a variety of bots to largely have the bot handle manual processes, uh, including actually a bot reading a handwritten form, verifying that it's there, then sending the record to Bill. Now, this is pretty groundbreaking, but in in the context of looking at the advances in medicine, a little behind. A little behind, um, but yeah, and um, people don't really think about it. I mean, right. it, it, think about it, it that way can help a hospital get paid quicker. It can help a person understand how much they owe quicker. I mean, mm-hmm. it needs to be there. <laughs> right. right. So it's amazing that it's kind of coming. You're saying that like remote process automation is happening right now in the rev cycle. Oh, oh yes. I mean, I, I would say that. There are a variety of companies, um, variety of providers that have either RPA teams or they are outsourcing out to vendors to actually have bots that are correcting claims, that are reviewing the completeness of a of a record, um, a lot of denials resolution, or also on the front end taking care of front-end eligibility checks, front-end verification. So there's a lot that can be done with a bot that then uh, is not going to, I would say, impact people's jobs, but it's going to make them more productive because then it's going to have them focus on the things that a bot can't do. A bot is not so true. (laughs) It's like having your own assistant, right? right? right. But it's taking away... The things, the busy work during the day, allowing a person to really focus on the issues that require that human reasoning, human understanding, uh, and those those high priority issues. Because you can also set up your bot to kick out for various exceptions. So if you have different rules, you're going to say, okay, if the bot sees this, then you're going to kick it out to a person. Then you have the person reviewing the things that they should be reviewing instead of spending half their day doing routine processes that really don't don't require them to think about that much, but they're highly time consuming and they do, you know, contribute to the bottom line. So they have to get done. Wow. The future is here. That is really neat. And it must be fun to be a part of it, you know, really, it really talking with really these is. health systems. It's really, it's really exciting because uh, some of the work that I've done is interviewing clients 
revenue cycle members around these processes that they're doing. And then correlating those processes with denials, with mm. billing edits. So understanding on a one hand, what is routine, what's being done that's mundane, rote, can be automated. Then on the other hand, how much is this costing you? So then we start prioritizing. Okay, if we can tackle this with automation, I'm going to whack out these denials. I'm going to whack out these edits, take care of that. Then let's really focus on the stuff that you do need your, your people to tackle. Uh, so it's been very eye-opening in talking to some of your frontline workers who say, like, yeah, and I click this and then I do this and I'm going to look up this. I'm going to look for this code. I'm going to copy and paste it here. And then I'm in. And you're recording the whole stream saying, oh, we can totally code this. And oh, I just, my goodness, we so. can totally code this. And they're like, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But there's definitely the fear with people mm -hmm. who are, you say the word automation and it's like, am I going to lose my job over it? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really not, not the case because with healthcare, I would say there is no organization that does not have a huge area of opportunity somewhere that they're not able to tackle because they just have too many things going on and they're spread too thin. Yeah. Yeah. that really makes a ton of sense. So we have a lot of young women here that, that watch this show and I, do you have any advice for young women in healthcare, health IT about what it, what kind of background it helps to take to get into healthcare rev cycle automation and technology? So I would say that it's very important to have a good foundation in statistics, a good foundation in, you know, maybe some, some math, maybe some advanced math, and just general um, desire to work with numbers, to understand numbers. That's, that's one. Mm -hmm. um, on the flip side, having some courses in organizational behavior and understanding why people do the you know why people do the things they do um, and understanding how organizations are structured what are the optimal structures for that and then there you know there are obviously a variety of courses that deal with and different ways of orchestrating processes mm -hmm. and different process management certifications project management certifications, obviously all of that is, is helpful as well. And um, one thing that I would also strongly suggest is when you get into an organization, find a mentor, mm -hmm. find someone who is going to be there for you and has the time because you can seek out a mentor or mentors assigned to you, but it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And so you really want to find someone who is going to be able to spend the time with you when you need it and help you structure your thinking, help structure your projects and be that second pair of eyes on what you're doing. Um, that is really great advice. That is really great advice. 
Um, so, you know, to kind of go a little personal, you know, obviously it's really hard getting to where you've, you've, you've come. And I'm wondering, you know, what are some things that you do to help you work your best? I'm um, just on a personal level, mental health things. Sure. You know. mm-hmm. So for me, I, I'm definitely passionate about exercise and I exercise most days can't do without it. Sometimes I think my husband thinks I'm crazy. (laughs) For example, this morning I started work at 4 a.m. with uh, an analyst that works in Ukraine. And so he and I were on for about an hour and a half. Then I went to the beach and played beach volleyball from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Then I was back in my office on calls at 8.30 and it's now just after noon here and we're still at it, but I, I carved out my my exercise time. And so I made that happen and definitely helps me to focus better. Uh, I also enjoy running, um, swimming, not so much, but uh, <laughs> you don't I, have I, to love every exercise. No, it's amazing no. that you have the time to, you know, that you make the time because it really right. is a choice every day saying to be my best self and work my best in this. I need to make sure that I am taking good care of my body. And that's really, really powerful and very important and good that you do that. Yeah. I, I, and then I also, I do spend time with my family. I feel that that's really important because like I was saying, when we go back to talking about work-life balance, if you have, if, if you're working too much and you're not spending enough time with what's important in life, because life is short. It's a, a job is a job, but I love mine. So I, I love my work. I find it incredibly interesting, but sometimes to the point that okay, it's 7.30, I need to get dinner going and I've got three kids and, a husband and, and I'm here looking at these accounts and thinking, oh, if they just done this and what can I do and how can I visualize this so that the client understands what their issues are and how to tackle them. I mean, You're preaching to the choir here, girl. <laughs> it's very fascinating getting into all of this data and, and understanding it. And when I have that big aha moment that, Oh my goodness, I've clearly, I've finally gotten to the root cause of this. Mm. And this is what's driving this issue here. And if they could just correct this here and do some preventative steps on the front end, um, very We're exciting. good to go. Yeah. yeah, good to go. But at the same time, mm. definitely important to have that, that time set out for your own, um, I, I, I want to say, you know, that, that me time. So whether it being exercise or meditation or, um, you know, just reading at leisure, something to pull you away. And, and obviously spending that time with the the family is when you come back and you have a slightly fresh perspective and you maybe look at something a little bit differently after you break and had your mind think on something else. So true. So true. So to finish off this conversation, right, where can our listeners find you online? So online, I am on LinkedIn. Um, In terms of, I I am not a huge social media user, but I would say largely on LinkedIn, you you can find me. Um, I do work at Visicoate, 
we have a fairly large social media presence there. We have some pretty cool, we have a YouTube channel. Uh, we do have a uh, our daily swoosh, a, a show that occasionally has guests and I have been a guest. Um, so you can find me there as well. That's terrific. Thank you so much. And before I forget, you bring your tea up. Did you bring tea with you today? I did bring tea with me today. Now, what kind of tea are you drinking or coffee? Chai. I am a chai tea fan. I, I love a good chai. Love it. Uh, you know, I drank coffee for a long time and somehow, I guess it was late 20s. I just, I was just done with coffee and yeah. switched to uh, black tea and chai tea. And that coffee. is awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Grace. Really enjoyed being here. Thanks for joining us, folks. Check out the Hit Like a Girl website and YouTube page for more great guests just like Summer today. Have a great one and cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.